Hello, and you are listening to the Exchanges Discourse Podcast with myself, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. We are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, published since 2013 by Warwick's Institute Advanced Study. Many episodes, we are talking to authors who've published with the journal about their research, about their academic publication experiences, and seeking their advice for others who are perhaps approaching their very first articles. In other episodes, we also focus in on developments of the journal and other things relating to scholarly communications. Today, though, we are going to be talking to one of our past authors who published in our recent special issue on the more than human world and the Anthropocene. Welcome back again to uh, the Exchange Discourse podcast, and I am today joined by a guest who was a author on a recent issue. And I'm, go- as always, for my guests, I always apologise if I mispronounce their names, but I'm going to try this. Welcome, uh, Beryl Tajan. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. And it was a good pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> always good to butter the host. So the first question is always obvious. Could you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Yes, of course. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Beryl. I'm a designer and researcher. I am currently doing a practice-based PhD in Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and um, I'm originally from Turkey. And I work at the design department as a part of Design for Sustainability Group. And I'm coming to the last stages of my PhD. So (laughs) it's a bit um, challenging and exciting time. And I'm working working with this fault-making method um, to understand different agencies such as carpet motifs, the environment and non-human agencies. Um, so I'm trying to just yeah, um, come to the last stage of my PhD right now. You have my sympathies. It's only six years ago that I was in the same part of that. I was coming to the end of mine. And it's an exciting time. It's a challenging time. It's a stressful time. So you have my every sympathy in that respect. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. So I guess then your PhD then is your major focus then at the moment? Yes, it is. So, I mean, um, because it's a practice-based search, I tend to focus on uh, making some artifacts right now, but it's also a PhD that is an academic thing mm-hmm. to do. So I'm also trying to go to some different conferences, go to some PhD gatherings, um, apply for some exhibitions, write some articles, write my final PhD thesis. So, yeah, those are uh, some things that I'm trying to do. So, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, um, hectic, but yeah, I'm trying to manage. I was going to say, I, I always remember, what, um, part of my PhD research was I was interviewing academics about their research artifacts. And I did interview someone like yourself who produced textile works, in this mm. case, costumes. And I had a fantastic conversation about, you know, how do you share physical artifacts um, it's all well and good for me to come and talk about open access of publications but you can't give people access to your office can you in the same way with physical no, practitioner no. kind of research <laughs> no i cannot uh, i mean luckily um, now many design conferences are open to some exhibitions mm. and artifact presentations so I try to join those um, open-minded design conferences where I can actually show people what I'm working on. And it's not even only about the artifact, it's about the process of making the artifact that Mm. I want people to understand. um, Because like in the process, you can see so many different things and notice so many different agencies that I want to 
make people just experience it some way. So my last um, presentation will be making the artifacts in the conference. So I'm going to this um, conference called uh, Nordis as a part of the PhD um, consortium and they gave us some um, spots where we can present um, our work in different ways. So we don't have to just present from the computer, we can also add some performances or exhibitions. So I, I told them that I want to um, do some small artworks and maybe have some people join me because if you make some small artworks, it's relatively easy and it doesn't mm. take so much time. So yeah, I will try to do that and yeah, have people join me um, so that we can like experience the process um, together. So yeah, I mean, but I'm still a bit confused about practice-based PhD because um, still um, even at my department, it's a very new subject. Like, um, I mean, I'm one of the first people who started to do practice-based research. So we are still trying to figure out what that is, how to present mm. it, and especially writing the PhD thesis um, as a monograph, it's a challenge because, I mean, I want to have a lot of nice pictures where I show the process and the final artifacts, but I think, yeah, the presentation will also be important. I mean, I plan to make other exhibitions even at the end of my PhD to show people like the artifacts and like mm. just try to make them experience it more. Well, I think it sounds a really exciting to a topic. I think, you know, you uh, I shall look forward to seeing that when it actually comes about. And obviously, uh, the reason we're talking today is about the article yourself and uh, some colleagues wrote uh, for exchanges, which is very much in this area. And I, I must admit, you know, I, I have to confess myself, I do in my spare time. I'm someone who works with wood and metal in a sort of constructive, crafty way. So I was very interested in you know, talking about textiles, you know, talking about this, you know, the whole creation of it. If you haven't read it yet, listeners, the article itself is called Repositioning Craft and Design in the Anthropocene, Applying a More Than Human Approach to Textiles. So my question, of course, to you is, could you give us a sort of brief summary of, you know, what was the, the core argument or topics of the, uh, the article about? Of course. So the article um, is about um, textiles as examples, um, as you said in the title. And it asks uh, some questions. Uh, first, it's mainly asking uh, how can designers approach human and non-human relationships? And secondly, it's um, asking how can we as humans better approach these human and non-human relationships to um, create more um, peaceful relationship between humans and non-humans? And um, basically, um, it has different parts. First, it's about thinking of design and craft together, because right now I'm in design department and uh, I have a background as a designer. And I was working in academia in Istanbul before, uh, where I was also researching design and craft relations. And so um, before design, the method of making was obviously through craft methods. Um, and after the Industrial Revolution, it's it, um, there came the mass um, production, so like um, crafts um, and artisanal work um, was a bit on the down level. And um, right now there's a new era where um, people are um, starting to realize um, design and craft are actually not so different from each other. And 
they are already very related to each other. So I try to just summarize like how design and craft um, are related to each other, even from this contemporary craft movement, um, such as the maker movement, craftivism movement, which are uh, more political. Um, craftivism is a more political moment, for example. So one part is about that, um, and the other part is, um, of course, about the more than human works. And it started from this workshop that I was a part of, from Catherine's call. And actually, my um, colleague Isaac um, suggested that um, I join this more than human works um, workshop that Catherine mm. was doing. So I joined that workshop, and that's how I got to know this exchanges journal actually and that's how i got to submit the paper and yeah basically i try to um, give the examples of textiles um, because um, when we look at more than human words there is so much to learn from it and um, some designers are starting to realize um, this more than human words and also the post-anthropocentric discourses but um, still in design when you look at more than human uh, design many people focus on it from technocentric ways or like hci and um, related topics but um, when i try to look at this environment and like acknowledging that we live in the nature more um, i didn't see so many examples from it so i wanted to just focus on this acknowledging nature part more because even the term more than human comes from um, the earthly nature. So I think it's very important for designers to know that. And from um, textiles, um, I noticed that we can do so much with it because when I was researching more than human work, um, then I had a thought. When I look at these um, ancient nomadic cultures, um, such as nomadic Turkish people called Yuruks, they were already uh, living with the environment because um, they are, they're a semi-nomadic community and they had this um, different relationship to nature um, that is not good or bad. So it's not about romanticizing nature, but they just had a um, different relation to it. And when I look at their te textiles, um, I can see this relationship because in this uh, nomadic cultures, actually um, written things are not so common. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about the um, non-written communication and the textiles they made. They're a part of this communication because when you look at this um, textile symbols, you see a lot of weird symbols um, that are kind of um, entangled together. And um, I mean, there are some um, natural symbols of birds, uh, snakes, etc. And there are also some cultural symbols and art historians in Turkey are um, really amazing and they do a lot of work to examine these textile motifs. But when I try to analyze them from more than human words, it's like a completely new thing because, I mean, it's such a different story. I mean, these uh, motifs all have um, different meanings such as uh, immortality, luck, health, fertility, um, just as examples, and when I try to analyze them from this more than human world views, I see that they are so related to each other, and I thought that, yeah, I should really write about this part. And um, mm -hmm. as I mentioned to you, I'm normally doing practice-based research, mm -hmm. but um, 
this paper um, is more about the theoretical um, approaches with empirical examples. So in this paper, what I tried to do was um, just to lay out what I'm trying to do and where my framework comes from. So it was a really good opportunity to just lay that out. Um, and I give some examples of three textiles. One of them is a woven carpet, really beautiful carpet from the 18th century that has a lot of um, different symbols. One of them is a nomadic um, Yuruk um, felted beam, which has like a sun symbol in the middle. And the last one is a very recent example that I saw in one of my field studies in Turkey when I conducted a field study with um, path makers. And I saw some birds on um, this um, padded um, cushions. And when I talked to the pad maker, he said that it's a Yoruk symbol, that bird. So I was like, yes. Um, so, wow, um, it's still being used because it's still a part of um, daily life and people are still inspired by it. So, yeah, they are. Um, this is um, basically what I tried to do in that article. Yeah. For those of you uh, listeners who haven't read the article yet, uh, I, I should mention it's, there's some beautiful illustrations in there, some images of some of these textiles, some of these fabrics that we've been talking about here. Uh, and I would thoroughly encourage you to go and read it and have a look at these because it really has helped put this in such great context. And there will be a link to that and um, you'll find in the episode description below. Well, thank you. That was that, that was fantastic. That was a really nice, thorough examination. What I thought was a, a really interesting article myself. I very much, I very much enjoyed reading it. I mean, oh, thank you so much. No, no, I, genu I genuinely, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I come from a communications background and while my area of interest has always been sort of, you know, the written <laughs> communication, these kind of cultural communications, these things where, as you say, there's these resonances that go down through history, these sort of cultural emblem, the symbology that comes through. It tells us so much about, you know, societies, about cultures, about communications, and let, let alone the kind of heritage aspects of it and mm -hmm. the, the traditions that are being kept alive. So, as I say, I thought thoroughly interesting piece as a result. So. Oh, thank you so much. And actually, when I was in Turkey um, during my master's, my um, supervisor was also from communications. Mm. And yeah, I was um, doing craft design relationships. And yeah, she also um, had this nice approach to what I was trying to do. And yeah, she was also focusing on this society aspect and the culture aspect. So yeah, um, really nice that you enjoyed the article. <laughs> You mentioned earlier on as well about you, you know, you're obviously working on some other publications and things at the moment. Is there anything you could um, tell us a bit more about those, about things you've got in, in the pipeline now? Um, so, as I said, I'm trying to focus on making some artifacts and maybe I will go to some um, artistic residencies this summer to just um, focus more on making artifacts. That sounds like that'll be very exciting, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, so it will give me um, more time to um, focus on the process of making artifacts. And um, I have some conference presentations coming up. So some of them are for um, doctoral consortiums in some conferences because, I mean, they opened up these um, doctoral consortiums in many design conferences now, and I think that's a really good way to meet other um, doctoral students who might be working with um, similar topics or even doctoral students who are working with very different uh, topics in design. So I find those very exciting to attend. 
And um, I mean, I will hopefully attend a conference um, in Spain um, after the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I submitted a paper for that too, but uh, it's not really a part of my PhD work, but uh, it's also about this post-anthropocene post mm. and how we should approach it from design education. And I just explained a workshop that I did uh, when I was in Istanbul. Um, I was working as an academician and I conducted some uh, workshops with students from architecture faculty. And um, one of them was, um, about path making, so it's a bit, it's still a bit related to my PhD, yeah. but it was to introduce uh, students to these different uh, ways of thinking from post-anthropocene. So I gave students some um, different challenges, and um, one of them was about um, creating a world where the whole universe is wool-based. Uh, so right now we live in a carbon-based universe, uh, let's say, and I challenged them to think of um, a planet where it's based in a wool-based mm. wool -based life. And really interesting results came, like half of the students made a very dystopic uh, universe, and the other half made a very utopianist um, <laughs> universe. So they were really, really beautiful works in the end, and they were still working with wool as the material. And yeah, I just reflect on the outcomes of this workshop in this um, paper. So I think yeah, it will be very interesting because that conference is um, a very traditional conference about design education and um, bringing in innovation. And I didn't see many papers before that reflected on this post-anthropocene mm -hmm. because um, I think I mentioned um, in design, it's still like a new thing, like um, some designers reflect on it and work on it, but in design education and especially industrial design education, I didn't see many examples, so I'm looking forward to um, that experience um, if the final submission is accepted. And yeah, I have other conferences um, coming up and yeah, but yeah, I will um, just see what I can um, write. It's good to hear that you're going to be keeping yourself nice and busy and that you've found an area where there clearly is research at the moment. You know, it's an area, an emerging zone. That's a quite exciting place mm -hmm. to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are uh, many designers working on it, but uh, I think uh, one of the challenges can be that some design conferences and journals are not super open to that idea. So we also get some bad feedback from um, some places. So I think that might be the issue. and. Yeah, it's still a challenge to define more than human words in design studies. Mm. And as I said, like it's more about like um, technological approaches, which all, I also find very valuable. And I always ask the researchers who, who do work from this technological side. But yeah, as I said, I'm trying to approach it from the earthly nature side. So mm. yeah, I'm really excited about what will come next. I'm intrigued there by your mention of sort of bad feedback. Now, is that feedback that's not helpful, or is it feedback that just is negative? <laughs> well, I mean, um, for Naming example, names, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I mean, some um, scholars are excited about this new framework, but uh, I feel like some others are not seeing why it's so important. And I mean, I can just um, give an example without uh, giving names, of course. Like I submitted to some conference, and 
in design-related conferences, it's more often the case that when you send something, it gets peer-reviewed mm -hmm. by at least um, two people. So I remember one feedback I got was that I was called regressive utopianists. And I don't even know what that means, but I mean, the reason, <laughs> the reason they called that was because I just wrote that I work with handicrafts mm -hmm. and yeah, I just work with my hands to do this felting technique. So what I was presenting was handmade. It wasn't made with machines. So yeah, somebody wrote that they are um, having difficulty to take it serious um, because mm. it's only handmade and it can be um, regarded as regressive utopianism. And yeah, I mean, I was like, <laughs> Okay, like I never thought of that before, and I don't think it's regressive utopia, but even if that's the case, um, okay, like I mean, because I'm also like influenced by this uh, nomadic clans, um, mm -hmm. and especially how they used to live um, years ago, like how they managed their life, how they used this hunting process to make even their houses and uh, everything in their houses um, because like they were living in felted tents which is actually a great isolation material like if you go into nomadic tents like a yoruk tent you should you see that it's protecting you from the cold actually so i mean i also reflect on them uh, in my thesis so i mean now i don't really have any problem with being called regressive utopianist, but I mean that paper was more about um, this handicraft approach. So I mean, yeah, I'm still thinking about that uh, feedback <laughs> that I got. <laughs> it's the joy of um, peer review that sometimes the feedback can be <laughs> unusual. It's interesting you're talking about nomadic cultures. I did a little bit of work um, on a project some years ago working with uh, nomadic cultures in uh, Mongolia, where oh. we were. We so were looking, nice. the, the, the project was looking at their perceptions of weather and land, particularly in regards to you know, how did they wish to receive weather forecasts. And that was really interesting hearing about their kind of cultural imperatives of, well, actually, we have a man who goes up a hill twice a year and he looks at the clouds and that's what the weather's going to be for the next six months. We rely on that primarily. So all this work with the pastoralists was very interesting. Obviously, a little different, a different area to yourself, but I found just looking at these cultures who are next to a technological culture, but so much apart from it was just so fascinating. I don't think that's regressive. I think that's just fascinating and something well worth studying myself. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I would love to read about that work because, um, yeah, it's a different area, but um, I also um, try to work with this uh, nomadic cultures. And yeah, as you said, like um, how they have a perception of weather and land like um, mm -hmm. it's really interesting so yeah I would like to um, read about um, that work if you have some news somewhere I'll, 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 send you, I'll send you the links after this <laughs> yeah yeah like please do like because yeah I also love Mongolia and like yeah they have this huge culture of um, fat making and they mm. have this very different methods yeah like um, I'm really fascinated by, by that like and yeah for the future like I would love to um, also research them I bet there's a lot of interplay between, say, the Turkish uh, cultures and the Mongolian you know, I mean, textile creation cultures. So absolutely. Well, good. Well, that's good. There, I've, I've given you some ideas. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, with uh, Mongolia, like, um, I think they're a bit 
more advanced about this fighting techniques now because like in the Turkish um, culture, yes, there are many fighting workshops right now that produce um, fat, which is um, really exciting and which is what I'm looking at. And like when I um, look at this history of uh, nomadic clans, I see that they uh, made a lot of things from fat, but when we look at this nomadic cultures now, there are only about um, two clans uh, who are um, still doing this um, nomadic lifestyle and most of the other Yoruks in Turkey, mm -hmm. they settled down and they moved on to this like normal lifestyle, they say. And for example, my mother is um, also um, Yoruk, she's coming from a Yoruk culture, but mm -hmm. yeah, like uh, unfortunately it's difficult to continue um, this um, lifestyle anymore because of many reasons. So. Yeah, most of the nomadic clans um, are just living a different life right now. And I mean, that's not to say that it's bad, it is what it is, but yeah, it's um, also like, I think in Mongolia, they still have a lot of um, fat culture going on and also this fat dance, uh, it's still a big deal there. So yeah, I think yeah, it's a very interesting um, place to do research. Well. One of the things we always talk about on the podcast, of course, is publication, um, obviously being a podcast about publication. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're someone, you know, fairly early on in your academic career. I mean, in, in your writing, in your submissions, we've talked a little bit about the experience of peer review here. <laughs> is there any sort of advice you feel you've already gained you'd like to pass on to those authors who might be approaching their very first article? I think yeah, this is uh, mentioned a lot in your podcasts too, but it's very important to find a good home for uh, mm. your article mm. so like don't be discouraged by rejections you get uh, if you get the rejections just try to find the right home for your um, article because i mean i was really lucky because like i think like five years ago i submitted my first article with my ex-supervisor and we had a really positive experience for my mm -hmm. first article mm. So like we first submitted to one journal and they rejected us, but then they said, okay, like we don't think it's relevant to our journal, but we have this sister journal who might be interested in your work and which is maybe more related. So we took their advice and submitted the work by changing it a bit to the other journal and they said yes. And then it was a very fast process. Um, they just yeah reviewed it and they wrote some feedback and yeah it was a fairly um, fast process and after that i expected it to be always like that like very nice neat process blah, blah, blah. but then i realized i was just very lucky for my first publication and it doesn't always work like that like you get rejections and the worst worst part is actually if you get a rejection but if you don't even get a reason for the rejection like sometimes mm. they do that sometimes they're like oh sorry we can't accept it but like um they don't even give a reason so that's just very upsetting but uh, i would say just go on and try to find the right um, place for your journal and especially like in my area in design like there are some journals that are very well known by the community and uh, very popular and many people um, send something to it, but sometimes they just don't accept many things from early career, career researchers. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge. So I would say just 
go to other journals and yeah especially for design like i mean i was always um, trying to send to design journals before because like i'm from design but my best experiences are always from other um, disciplines like for example exchanges the interdisciplinary journal like um so i would just say go explore um, other journals that might be interested in design but they are not necessarily design journals so yeah i think yeah those are some advice uh, i could give and don't be afraid to ask for help because like i tend to just go on google and write design journals and um, try to find related journals which mm -hmm. takes a, a lot of time but then i realized that um, if you just send some emails to some um, research groups they are very helpful and they give mm -hmm. some suggestions to you so use that help and i would also say go to some conferences because many design conferences already have this peer reviewing process so it's pretty much similar to journal article submissions you submit your article then you get a lot of feedback then you present that work and you get other feedback and sometimes in those conferences you meet some people and they suggest you some journals that you can publish in so yeah yeah just try to use those ne networks and don't be discouraged disencouraged by some rejections that you might get on the way like it happens yeah it happens to us all it really it really does i'm i'm so pleased to hear that your first experience was so positive because i so often talk to early career researchers postgraduate researchers and they're always say, oh that first getting that first article published it was you know all oh, the feedback was so negative i felt so disheartened but fantastic you had a positive first experience and I'm, i'd love to hear that was great <laughs> yeah like i'm also surprised and like the topic was a bit let's say niche or like mm. i mean not so usual uh, it was about silver smithing in istanbul so i thought maybe nobody would accept that mm. but because it was very um, different topic than some others that's why it got accepted so quickly but as i said if that first journal didn't recommend anything to us maybe that work wouldn't be published at all so mm. yeah i mean mm. it was a really good experience for my first it's a, it's a really interesting point there that you know it's the role of the journals themselves to be if even if it's a no to try and offer some direction you know whether it's the case of well actually this is where we have difficulties with the articles but as you said you know oh actually this sister journal this is a, a journal you could go to instead because they have this experience and i i, I believe we try and do that at exchanges when we have to de uh, decline things and i just hope my colleagues and other journals do it as well because i think it's so important to help authors find somewhere to go because i, I confess the number of articles i have seen over the years at exchanges that i would just go are aren't, aren't publishable at all mm. it's almost non-existent mm. it's just always a case as well maybe not today or maybe mm. not else but somebody else and that i think is the truth of anything that's written by virtually any academic there's probably a home for it somewhere mm -hmm. but finding that home can be the challenge <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all these insights. I hope lots of folks are going to go away and read the article. I, I cannot say it enough. It's a really, really enjoyable piece. Great topic. And I, I loved having exchanges. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great experience. And this was my first podcast, um, actually. 
I set up something in my brother's room and he has this very fancy microphone system <laughs> and like yeah like it was a really nice first experience uh, at my podcast well, I hope you get on many, many more after this. <laughs> yes, I hope so too. Thank you so much. And I'd like to say thank you to my guests today for a really interesting exploration of their topic. You have, of course, been listening to the Exchanges Discourse podcast with myself, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. If you want to find out more about the journal and uh, the publications we've been discussing, there are links, of course, in the episode description. You can, of course, find the journal by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. Or if you've got a question and you want to get in touch with us, you can reach me by our email at exchangesjournal at warwick.ac.uk. And we're also on Twitter and Mastodon as ExchangesIAS. Thank you for listening and please don't forget to like, share and subscribe to catch every single episode.